Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast all about the great books of the Western tradition. I am Dr. Jared Henderson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And today we are going to be talking about the bard and his work, Macbeth. That's right. We oh. are not super... We are, yeah, it's no, called no, the Scottish play. No, we're not superstitious on this podcast. This is a this is a, this this is an anti superstition podcast, um, at least for the present time. Um, I feel like gonna... as an Anglo Catholic and an Eastern Orthodox, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, we might we might be more prone to it than than many others. But um, I'll say it. I'll say Macbeth. I think really you're only supposed to not say it in a theater. I think that's that's, right. the, that's, that's right. the real thing, right? But is it? But if all the world's a stage. Then we, then we then we've got into some serious problems. Um, no, but the, today we are going to talk about Macbeth, um, a classic work by Shakespeare. Our first Shakespeare on the podcast, our first work of theater or drama on the podcast as well, and uh, a text that I had not read prior to uh, our discussion. I had not read Macbeth. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, which is the exact expression you gave me last time when I told you that I hadn't read Macbeth. But, oh, uh, I forgot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't keep up with assume, what you've read and what you've. Everyone read. just assumes that I've read it. You know, uh, this is this is this is actually kind of part of why I wanted to do this podcast in the first place hmm. was because you know I'm a, I'm a lover of the great books. I'm a lover of like the canon. Um, I think the canon itself is valuable. Um, but I, I can't say that I have actually sort of lived up to that love, uh, like, consistently. There's just so many texts that sort of would even make it into your, like, top 100 for, like, the canonical books or something that I never read. Uh, and so the podcast is kind of an excuse to do that. Um, and I think that with Shakespeare, uh, it was a case, maybe, maybe it was because, like, the people I learned Shakespeare from uh, in high school and in college... You know, there were like a few that they wanted us to definitely hear, like read. So we read Romeo and Juliet like my freshman year of um, high school because everyone does apparently. But then I feel like my 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 high school English teachers all wanted to emphasize like the less popular Shakespeare to us. Now I'm happy they made us at least read one work of Shakespeare per year. Um, but the ones that we read were Much Ado About Nothing, um, Othello. And a Midsummer Night's Dream, hmm. which are all great, but <laughs> we didn't read Hamlet, we didn't read Macbeth, we didn't read King Lear, um, so I, I feel like there's just stuff I missed out on. And then um, I read The Merchant of Venice when I was in when I was uh, an English major in college, before I stopped being an English major um, to focus on uh, the the one true major, philosophy, but. You know, I just didn't have a chance to read a lot of it in a class. If only you pushed through, you would have maybe finally have read Macbeth. But oh. uh, I think if you actually think about what most college English curricula are like, the odds of me reading Macbeth probably would have decreased the more that is that, true. That is <laughs> the true. more that I, I, I studied this. Um, you know, we had we had a few very uh, in my undergraduate institution. We had a few professors who clearly loved the canon, and you could sort of tell from the stuff. Uh, there was a professor. I took her course on like the historical linguistics of the English language, but she also taught um, a whole class called "The Bible is Literature," and it was just based on the King James Bible. Um, Love it, yeah. And she was the one who we had. We also had an, uh, a Bale scholar in my undergrad department and things who was a. Uh, so you know there would have been people who who did teach it, but most classes that you would teach 
Well, I should say yeah, so, I have a special place in my heart for Shakespeare. Uh, I have his same birthday, which is also well. I think it's around his birthday, anyways. But then also the day he died is also uh, around that time too. So um, April twenty third. Um, and actually, this was the theme of my first birthday, which I don't remember, of course. But my mom tells me that the the tagline of the party was "to pee or not to pee." That is the question. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, we have it's, a guy it, who come. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, no, please. I was going to say, well, we have a guy who who comes to my parish who went to this um, the graduate school at St. John's College, and while he was there, someone told him if you really want to appreciate the English language. You know, you should read the works of Shakespeare. You should read the King James Bible and the P- Book of Common Prayer. And so we have two of those three things. But I feel like now I finally get to complete the collection um, because we're doing this this episode about Shakespeare. So I think that'll be good. Um, Excellent. It should be said, I think this is very interesting, that King James of the Bible uh, was a patron of Shakespeare. And there is a sort of amateur theory out there that Shakespeare helped translate the King James Bible, because if you look at Psalm 46, in verse 3, it says that though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, and then in verse 9, about 46 words later, so it's Psalm 46, about 46 words later, it says, he breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. So some people have speculated that that was Shakespeare kind of leaving um, leaving his signature in the Psalter. I don't think that that's the case because the 1549 Book of Common Prayer also has those words, 46 words apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be pretty cool if the King James Bible also had the backing of Shakespeare as a translator. It, will, it, it would, though it's not like the King James Bible needs more literary like commendations <laughs> that is true uh, we're talking about the text that probably formed the english language as we speak it now more than basically anything else well the um, rich get richer <laughs> so yeah so you know um but but this is important actually to think about this because um the language of the book of common prayer the language of uh the king james bible and the language of shakespeare are probably what people think of when they think of great English, um, like great, just great English simplicator, whether that's prose or poetry. And so I think that anyone who's serious about reading English literature and wants to understand our turns of phrase, sort of, sort of our, our, our idioms, so much of it is found in those three, those three texts. Um, in part because, you know, with the Bible and the book of common prayer, uh, because most of it is because, um, just the, religious texts were a bigger deal than like they are now, right? Uh, but those words and those idioms and common phrases have still kind of been passed on and similarly in Shakespeare. In fact, sometimes you'll read Shakespeare and go, oh man, I, you know, I didn't realize that idiom came from Shakespeare originally. I remember having a high school teacher with a poster that it was just like of idioms that came from Shakespeare. It was just, the text was so small because it was just like was totally full, full, full of it. Um, and so really, you know, it's like when someone asked me, how should I start reading um, English language poetry that's like classic? And I said, the first thing I said was like, you should just read the Psalms, either from the Book of Common Prayer or from the King James Bible. Um, and I think they were a little surprised by that originally. Uh, but I just think it's like, if you're talking about formative English poetry, 
There it is. <laughs> there it yep. is. It doesn't matter that it's a work of translation in that case. It just is the definitive text or part of the or one of the definitive texts for the English language. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I wanted to give a little bit of historical context for Macbeth because I was very interested. I was doing a little research on this. I had I've read Macbeth before. I read it in high school and have picked it up a few times since. Uh, not really read through in one sitting or anything like that, but just um, just kind of here and there. And honestly, in all this, all these encounters with Macbeth, never realized it's based on real history. Macbeth was a person um, who lived in the 11th century in Scotland. And, and we don't know a ton. I mean, we know that we know that he became the Earl of Moray. Moray was like a, an independent province in Scotland. And it's thought that he maybe killed his predecessor, assassinated his predecessor. He did end up marrying his predecessor's widow, though they didn't have any children. Um, while he was ruling, he, he had a 17 year reign and it was fairly peaceful. Um, or no, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. While while he was ruling in the province, uh, the king of Scotland, who was Duncan the First, who is the king in Macbeth who gets assassinated, attacked Moray, and Macbeth's forces won. And as a result of that victory, Macbeth became king of Scotland, or Alba mm-hmm. is what it was called back then. And he reigned as king of Alba for about 17 years with a very rather peaceful reign from what we can tell. Malcolm III, who was Duncan I's son, came with the English. Edward the Confessor sent troops um, to to Scotland, and they basically took the throne back. Um, So it's interesting to note that King James, who was a patron of Shakespeare, was related to Duncan I and Malcolm III, making this kind of a, a political propaganda. I mean, it certainly explains why Shakespeare was so intent on portraying Macbeth as such a depraved guy um, and and kind of the Duncan line as, as a good line, you know. Um, of course, I think, I mean, also, it's just an avenue for him to tell a really fantastic story, which I think he does. Um, mm-hmm. But I, And also, it should be mentioned, too, there are a number of references throughout the work to the gunpowder plot which occurred in 1605, which was a group of Roman Catholics who tried to assassinate King James I so that they could restore a Roman monarch to the English throne, Roman Catholic monarch to the English throne, and make the country Roman Catholic again. This specifically comes out in the Porter's dialogue when he's, you know, when there's the knocking in the middle of the night and the Porter gets up and he's like damning all these different people to hell, um, kind of fictitiously, and he mentions um, an equivocation or equivocator. Um, that was probably um, Henry Garrett, who was a Jesuit priest, who had come up with a kind of law of equivocation, which was that it's okay to tell a white lie kind of in the service of justice. Um, oh, so sort of yeah. like, like Rahab does for the spies in the book of Joshua. He believed it was okay to lie if justice was the, was the kind of larger goal. Um, so it was very. It's very interesting because uh, that he includes that, and and there's some other references in that scene and, and elsewhere to the gunpowder plot. But I just found those kind of factoids very interesting. Um, I'm a little bit nerdy, I guess, about English history given my background, but I think those those help set, shed some light on the play and and what Shakespeare's doing. Yeah, th- it's really interesting. I definitely want to bring up later. There's this one weird thing that happens at the end of the play, um, which we can. Actually, we could just skip ahead to this, too, because we never go through the text chronologically here, I guess. 
Um, one of the things that happens when uh, Malcolm becomes king and, and Macbeth is defeated, and you know this, by then you know, it's like Macbeth has died, Lady Macbeth has died, all the like the, the action is over. Um, Macbeth renames the thanes to earls. Mm. Um, and he's using like the title that's used in England because the English have um, uh, aided him, right? The, Eng- the English have helped him. You mean Malcolm the renames the? Yeah, this is what I meant to say. Yeah, so yeah. when Malcolm, when Malcolm has become king, so Macbeth has died and stuff. Malcolm, and then, um, uh, yeah, he says, "My thanes and kinsmen henceforth be earls, the first that ever Scotland in such an honor named." Yep. And if you are perhaps interested in sending some kind of political message about, like, the unity of Scotland and, <laughs> and England as Great Britain, or, or sorry, of, uh, of the United Kingdom, right, so, the, uh, so then that's the kind of thing, like, where it's like, look, what happened was, like, peace and order are restored and as a sign of this unity, right? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So I, I just highlight that it's as, like, um, it's not past Shakespeare to have a political message as well. Whether or not that's his primary primary task or if it's like a nice thing to add because your patron is the king <laughs> uh, or, or something, right? Because there's this history of like English kings uh, ruling Scotland and the Scottish not liking it, the Scottish kings trying to rule England, the English not really liking it, not really liking it, you know. Um, and uh, after the Reformation, there's a huge amount of Discord that eventually will emerge because of because of Presbyterians, um, and or, even today uh, the 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 King and Queen of England are the heads of both the Church of England but also the Church of Scotland. The Church of Scotland is Presbyterian, so the at the coronation in Scotland they uh, they uphold or they pledge to uphold the basically the Protestant faith of Scotland, which is Presbyterian. It's oh, very interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so anyway, so you can see that there are, there are these political messages that you're going to find in Macbeth. Um, but I guess when most people are reading Macbeth, they're not reading it for the politics, right? Necessarily for like the <laughs> the, the the politics of King James's reign. But instead, um, I mean, if I'm pulling out major themes from this text. Um, clearly, there's something about ambition, the role of ambition. There are reflections on what a what like a good king is, and then also the way that treachery and conspiracy and evil have this kind of creeping effect, where they can't be contained, right? Um, and I'm actually reminded a lot when I was reading this of a line that appears in the work of David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, um, who's often called one of the, the British empiricists, but he's also part of the Scottish Enlightenment. And he has this idea of, like, um, the the knave who thinks he can get away with acting, like, evil, when, like, he can be evil when no one's looking. And the knave can be sufficiently clever. Uh, and so it, the question is, like, how do you persuade someone like that, right, to be moral? And essentially what he says is, like, you actually have to just point out to them that no one will ever be clever <laughs> clever enough. That you will be caught because you will form habits or dispositions that will kind of take over in certain circumstances. Or, like, the treachery will just get out. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's like it's almost like a 
pragmatic argument to be moral out of hmm. self-preservation. But the idea is that like you can't isolate the times you do evil stuff and where you act wrongly and act like that's just like a one-off thing and then go off and just like act justly. And Macbeth, you know, sort of to give you the, the reader uh, the listener a little bit of context, Macbeth sees an opportunity to become king through treachery. So he kills the king, or he sort of sets up the assassination. Um, and then what he finds is he has to keep killing. And he has to descend into... He descends essentially almost into madness because he is constantly racked by guilt, but also he is always worried that one day someone's going to find out. <laughs> and the conspiracy can't be contained. Yeah, he always has to look over his shoulder... Yeah, you know, it's and it, it and at first it's a king, and then you need to frame the king's sons, and so the, the you know the, the the sons will uh they'll run away. Then you need to kill your friend because uh, he kills Banquo, right? Well, you forgot he killed or, the guards too. Oh yeah, he kills the guards. He kills the guards, so they can't really so they can't be witnesses. But it's mm-hmm. he uses it as an excuse or a deflection because he's he's oh I was so angry at what they did, so I I killed them. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. He so he kills, uh, he kills his friend, and then his uh, friend's son goes off to um, that's Fleance or Fleance yep. or uh, yeah. uh, has to run right, even though he actually wants to kill him too. Um, eventually, we see uh, is it um, Macduff's son is eventually killed Mc, uh, uh, as well. well like he, he kills just Macduff's see, whole family. Yeah, yeah. So more and more, the body count just keeps stacking up. And even when he's with his thanes, who have all pledged their loyalty and things like this, he's he is haunted by the ghost of Banquo, or he thinks he sees a dagger, or he's he's talking to himself. Like nothing he does is um, calm. He can't enjoy any of this position of power that he's taken because it's not his, and because he could always be exposed. And this is this is the thing that sticks out to me the most when I was reading this. It's just like it's it's like a huge argument for to be moral. It's yeah. a, it's an argument to, to to be moral. Um, it's a morality play without the preachiness in the in the, in the in the way that like the traditional morality plays literally often had something like a sermon at the end. <laughs> I I think there's a I think that it shows the really insidious aspect of this too because there's this kind of facade that I think he and Lady Macbeth both buy into that just one more step will bring them the security they're looking for so first you kill the king then you kill the guards okay great and then you got to kill um then you got to kill Banquo uh you know they, and it's it's a cascading thing but every time every step promises to bring about its own kind of peace but it never does of course and he kind of knows this at the beginning I mean he he sort of tells himself this and then of course Lady Beth convinces him to go through with it. Or maybe we should say yeah, he, she so, shames him to go through with it really. Yeah, and we can talk about the the interesting relationship of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. I think there's there's a lot to be said there. But, you know, it's imagine when you're like a kid and did you ever have like that time when you're a kid where you lie to your parents? Oh, of course. And then you realize that to lie to your parents you have to keep lying. Yep. And you always think, though, but no, I'll just finish it. Like, you know, it's like about finishing your homework, right? And you're like, but eventually I'll go back and I'll finish the homework and then I can stop with the lies. 
but lies just pile up, right? Um, and then, and then, if you're a kid, sometimes it just ends like in tears or something. We have to come clean, but but Macbeth can't have that moment because to do that is to lose everything. Mm-hmm. There are some interesting parallels in that, I think, too, with um, with his other play about Julius Caesar. Um, you know, Brutus and Cassius. And then I think there's a sense in which Mark Antony and Cleopatra might be kind of archetypes for Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Um, of course, I, well, I don't know. I, it is interesting. I mean, of course, it's interesting to note Brutus is, you know, in the ninth circle of hell and Dante. Um, mm-hmm. So I, you could certainly see where Macbeth, at least as Shakespeare portrays him, would probably be right there next to him, I would think. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of yeah. that continual turn inward. The whole play is is Macbeth turning inward, um, and mm-hmm. there's never any glimmer. I mean, once he kind of steps forward uh, into that cycle, there's no there's no turning back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think, and the difference is um, in the well, the connection between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth is nice to bring up here, then, because so Macbeth doesn't want to kill Duncan. He, he hesitates, right? <laughs> but Lady Macbeth wants him to. Now, I, I and I and I want to illustrate or point out just early on, Shakespeare does not always just call the women in his plays Lady So and So. They often have na- <laughs> names, and I actually think there's something significant about the fact that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are signified by basically the same name uh, here, because they are sort of two ways you can go after something so heinous. So Macbeth hesitates and is essentially shamed into it by his wife. And then he goes and commits this great crime. He responds, though, by doubling down. Right? He responds by continually doing more and more. And Lady Macbeth, and so his response is fear, it's anger, it's paranoia. Lady Macbeth's eventual response is shame. <laughs> it's shame and guilt which are the actual moral emotions to have here. <laughs> um, and so Macbeth and Lady Macbeth sort of go two different paths. And of course, Lady Macbeth ends up taking her life by her own hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't just think it's because the English are coming now, you know, or, and, and Malcolm is going to come. It's shame. It's shame mm-hmm. that's doing this. She's wailing, as, you know. Um, whereas Macbeth, when he dies... He takes out everybody he can with it, <laughs> right? Like he's, he goes down swinging. Um, and so there's an interesting moral message there. It's like, what's worse? To be hesitant when you do something, but then to never regret it and to like, double down, to be like reluctantly sinning, but then to keep doing it? Or to very boldly sin and then realize the gravity of your actions? right. At least Lady Macbeth, there's like a almost a glimmer that she could be saved, right? Mm. That, that she can be redeemed in some way. The Doctor, when she he tells uh, when Macbeth and the Doctor are speaking, um, Macbeth says basically, "Don't you have something that could just take the thought out of someone's mind like this?" And the Doctor says basically, "That's a medicine that can only be administered by the person who's sick." Mm. Right. It's not, and, and, and of course. Macbeth needs to hear that just as much as Lady Macbeth needs to hear, mm-hmm. hear, hear that. Yeah. It is a very, it's very interesting because they do, I mean, in some ways they kind of 
uh, flip places. And I think, um, you know, at the very beginning, you kind of get this idea, at least in her mind, in the way she depicts it, that um, she she definitely views Macbeth's waffling on, on killing the king as kind of a feminine thing. And so she has that whole kind of monologue in, I think it's uh, scene five of act one, where she talks about being unsexed. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, it's interesting because, you know, she has this, and I, I think wrapped up, at least in their perspective, you know, this idea of, of maternal imagery and hospitality are very important. So they obviously, the king is welcomed into their home where he's killed. Um, but she has this kind of whole monologue about being unsexed, which I think is very interesting. Um, basically having all of her femininity removed. Um, and then she pushes Macbeth. You kind of get the idea that Macbeth is kind of the, the more passive one here, and he's being pushed into it. But then you're right. You do get this flip where all of a sudden um, Lady Macbeth does seem to does seem to regret it um, to the point that she can't live anymore. But at one point she's even saying, you know, it, for him to be king, she would take she would take her own child and, you know, basically kill it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's interesting because you wonder where does the switch flip exactly in her um, with Macbeth, it's kind of understandable. I mean, once you start, once you do something like that, I mean, once you cross the Rubicon, it kind of makes sense. You know, you, you can get really callous towards that. But from her perspective, I'm. it's interesting that at some point she sort of, uh, I don't know, in some sense regains her humanity in some way. I mean, not, not fully, but in some way. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, we have to be careful here. I don't want to say that, for instance, when someone is um, is guilty of doing something grievously wrong, the solution is to kill themselves. Well, of course not. Yeah, right, right, right. and I don't. Neither of us believe this, right? But there's at least a sense where the healthy part of that response is that it's guilt and shame, right? <laughs> right. So she's recovered the feelings that are actual moral emotions that aren't just acts of self-preservation. In fact, for her, self-preservation has just been totally thrown away. Um, but what's interesting on this, um, in this play, I think maybe you see this in a lot of Shakespeare, but a lot of the emotional or psychological development happens off screen. <laughs> like it doesn't happen on the page. Mm. It happens between scenes or as we skip ahead in history or, you know, or in, in time. And we're sort of left to infer what kind of developments have led to this. So how does Lady Macbeth get to this place where she realizes just how bad it is? I don't know. We don't, we aren't told, but we are, we're sort of left to provide the story for ourselves. I do um, wonder a bit if, um, cause there is that scene where he does see Banquo's ghost and you kind of see him begin to unravel and she's there for that. And it's kind of like, what the, you know, I mean, she sends everybody away, and she she you know basically says she's going to take care of him, and I I wonder if that might be part of it, um, seeing what it's doing to him, you know, because because the idea at the beginning, I mean, he's this strong man. I mean, the the opening scene, the reason they're at his castle is because of all the all the noble deeds he did on the battlefield, um, where he defeated the king's enemy and all that, and so he's mm-hmm. he's a great warrior, he's a strong man. 
Um, I think from her perspective, there's even, you know, the, the fact that he does eventually take the step, you know, should have been, in, in killing the king, should have been credited to him as, you know, a, a kind of strength as well. But then you be, you see this guy begin to unravel and the paranoia and everything, and, and he's no longer what he was. And so perhaps she realizes that this deal she makes with the devil, I mean, not literally, but this deal she makes with the devil at the beginning is not really worth it. Um, once they once they yeah. obtain what it is that they're looking for, they realize it's kind of a hollow thing. So what do we make of the witches mm. in all of this? Because they initiate some action, and they appear at certain important times, but they're sort of a mysterious force. They are. Um... So my read on them is that, I mean, first of all, they, they're there to kind of sow disorder and chaos. And there's this kind of, especially from the average, I think, English person's perspective at this time, you know, witchcraft is um, sort of unnatural. You know, that's I think that's how they would have mm-hmm. thought about it. And, and, and you see that in Macbeth and Lady Macbeth kind of following um, – I mean, Macbeth kind of talks about this, that it's unnatural for him to want to have the ambition that he does. Um, The king's been so Mm -hmm. nice to him. He's honored him. Um, The proper hierarchy means he should submit to the king and trust the king because the king is doing what's good for him. So it's unnatural for Macbeth to then kill the king. I mean, it's not like the king's a bad guy. We don't gather that at all from the text. He seems quite good. Um, and and then you see the kind of unnatural imagery continue. I think in Lady Macbeth, I mean that idea of being a sort of anti mother, you know, being able to to crush the child that's that you're nursing, um, mm-hmm. is a complete subversion of nature. And so yeah, I think I think that's kind of where they, in in some ways, I mean they're sort of a distilled or a catalyst for for pushing the unnatural. You know, they kind of plant that seed in Macbeth at the beginning. So that's that's at least partly what I would do with them. I don't know if you would um, if you would handle them differently. No, I think I think there's something to what you're saying, or there's a lot there. I think there is something kind of remarkable about the fact that the witches aren't aren't given motivation. Mm. That and this came up in our Beowulf episode where we wondered why does Grendel do these things and why do the mother of Grendel do do these things because. They only have a few kind of base emotions. Um, and the witches are similar to this. They seem to enjoy what they do. There seems to be kind of a deviousness to it, which can be a kind of enjoyment. But why pick Macbeth? Mm. Right? Like, for for one, um, what, what does it benefit them to see a king die and then a new king take his place? Right? Do they just enjoy the cruelty of it? I don't know, right? It, it, are they really just like kind of the instruments of fate, right? They're just sort of the personification of, of fate or something like this. Uh, and also, when they go and announce to Macbeth, first that he will be he will have this new, this new land as a thing as like a reward because Duncan was betrayed by someone else. Poor guy, I can't catch a break. But then they say, and you'll be king, right? And then they said to Banquo that your children will be kings. And 
how much of that is just them toying with Macbeth? Mm. How much of it is a prophecy and how much of it is them toying, right? Um, because Banquo's children don't become kings, right? I... Th- I th- what happens to Fleon? Oh, I guess I'm, I just looked this up that apparently Fleance is sort of a mythic figure in the in, in Scottish history who is part of the history of the House of Stuart. Mm, okay, okay. Okay, so I am wrong to say this. People would have recognized that reference then. Yeah. That, that Fleance is, is, is going to be part of the House of Stuart. So how much of it is like, but how much of it is actual prophecy? How much of it is just like by placing this in front of Macbeth? They know he will act on it. Because would Macbeth have tried to kill Duncan if he hadn't been told that he would be king? The only... Well, I, well there is a sense in which I think they are... It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know. I mean, they, they, they tell him that so that he will do it. But they do at the end, um, in the second set of prophecies, you know, when they, when they kind of mislead him later... Mm-hmm. They do that with a kind of foreknowledge, knowing that they're telling him part of the truth, but not the whole truth. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Okay, so they do have these powers, right? And like they can do they, and obviously, even if they were like messing with him, the fact that they can vanish and things, right? So there are there is like magic here, um, but still, we're kind of left with like, why would these witches decide to do this? Like, why would the weird sisters decide? that this is the thing they want to do today. Um, do they enjoy the chaos, right? And, and I think that um, what struck me here as I started thinking about that question is that that question itself might be a very modern question to ask about a text. That we are always want to psychologize evil in our modern readings of text and that maybe... Um, pre-modern writers or, you know, like Beowulf, the author of Beowulf, certainly. Do we, do we call Shakespeare pre-modern? When does modernity begin? He's on the edge, I think. I mean, yeah. he's, he's post-Reformation, okay, but, so I, he's certainly yeah. leading up to modernity. I don't know. I don't know if I would, okay. I would call him pre-modern, but I don't know that I'd call him modern either. You know, I mean, he's a yeah, classic. Yeah, but, okay. Lim- liminally monitored or something, but you know, but these these earlier writers didn't feel the need to psychologize evil so much. Um, you know, when we talked before the show, I thought your example was great. Uh, that um, we're not satisfied with Darth Vader until we've been given a prequel that explains why Darth Vader does the things he does. Or my great hatred in life is is the musical Wicked, which takes a very good villain. And ruins her as a villain. <laughs> and instead, looking can even be a little compelling if you watch it, but it it's like suddenly the villain's not allowed to be a villain. The villain is always misunderstood, right? Mm-hmm. But in this story, there is no misunderstood villain. Um, the, the witches are evil, and we don't bother to ask why. And then Macbeth does evil stuff, and Lady Macbeth does evil stuff, and we explain that not through like, well their dads didn't hug them enough. We explain, we explain that through the fact that they're bad people, like that they have vices and that they desire too much and that they, uh, and we would say desire unnaturally. Right. And I think that this is actually, there's like a thesis statement to this play. 
um, between uh, Macduff and Malcolm when they're speaking. And Malcolm is basically saying, like, you know, when I am king, they're just like, there wouldn't be enough uh, in the world to satisfy me. Like, there aren't enough women to satisfy me. Here are all, like, these terrible things I would do as king. And you can see he's, like, motivated by anger. And he's motivated by loss. And Macduff says, uh, Boundless intemperance in nature is a tyranny. It hath the untimely emptying of the happy throne and fall of many kings. But fear not yet to take upon you what is yours. You may conf- and then he talks about you know you may convey your pleasures in, in the appropriate way blah 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 he, he goes on here, but it's boundless intemperance in nature is a tyranny, right? Um, Macbeth had boundless intemperance right and it and, and becomes actually he is called the tyrant but um, he's actually living under a tyranny as well, which was the tyranny of his own ambition. Um, but that's not like a that's not that same kind of like modern. Like, let's psychologize the evil. That's just, like, pointing out, like, a deep character flaw. Like, you've just done this, you know. That doesn't actually give us any more sympathy for him. We're more comfortable in these texts just having an evil character. That's my big my, my big statement here. We don't have evil characters in the uh, uh, anymore. We've gotten rid of them, and now... Uh, but these texts let us actually have evil characters. I don't want to get too theological, but I do wonder if the, if the, and you're right, it is a largely uh, modern phenomenon of getting rid of the, of the evil character. And it's certainly true that, I mean, like we talked about Beowulf, there's certainly a Christian uh, imagination kind of undergirding at least parts of it. Obviously, Shakespeare's coming from a certain Christian milieu. I do, I do wonder though, if if this move towards psychologizing a villain is somewhat of a Christian impulse. You know, in other words, in other words, understanding why a person is malformed, and thereby having maybe some hope that that malformation is not. That that there is something there that can be saved, I think might still might might be reflective of a Christian imagination. Now, I I agree this can be deployed badly. You know, I mean the prequels of Star Wars are horrible. The only thing worse than them is the sequels in Star Wars. But that's a whole other thing, right? But uh, and it's also true of Wicked. I mean, I'm not a uh, I used to listen to the soundtrack of Wicked back in the day, but it's not the story itself is not very good. But but I do, I, I, I do kind of wonder if maybe the impulse is not all bad. Yeah, okay. So there is something there where we are allowed to... Um, well, okay, there's something there, which is that there's a Christian understanding of, like, sin is like an illness that afflicts the one who has done this, right? And it's just something I believe. And, and so there there is this kind of sympathy to it, to it. I think that what we've lost in, like, our contemporary critical culture is being able to understand sin as an illness or evil as an illness that afflicts the person who commits it as well Mm -hmm. and also have a sense of justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we, um, aren't willing, like it's like by psychologizing it, we tend to almost act like they're, they're the real victims. Mm. 
right? I, you you kind of get the sense like the point of Star Wars, like the, the prequels, is that you're supposed to think like the v- real victim all along is Darth Vader, uh, who then gets to have his redemption. He's like gets to free himself of this. Mm. And there's a sense in which that's there's like a reading of this, but that can't be used to overlook the fact that like Darth Vader kills a bunch of little little young Padawan or younglings, and then also you know is around when they blow up a planet. Like you know, like you know, that, that like that there's that there's real evil that he commits. To. Yeah. Um, and it's like, how do you hold those two things in tension? Yeah. But not, don't resolve them by just erasing one of them, mm-hmm. right? That would be that's the danger of our current, uh, you know, uh, of our current kind of cultural hermeneutic. You might say. I do. I do wonder. Well, I'm and and you can kind of. You can kind of see it, you know, in Macbeth and in Lady Macbeth. We've already talked about there are kind of those those moments. I mean, when Macbeth hesitates, when Lady Macbeth seems to regret, um, whereas mm-hmm. the witches never have that, right? And so I almost wonder if you could kind mm-hmm. of import a kind of demonology from a from a medieval, you know, late medieval uh, Christian perspective, where where you know, at least in Protestant and Western Catholic circles, there was never there's never any question about whether demons can be saved right they've kind of they made a primal choice and they're kind of stuck on that trajectory now and there's no hope for redemption so in other mm-hmm. words their imagination allows for uh on the human level there's this kind of you know macbeth is an unfortunate story of a guy who who gave into this inordinate ambition lady macbeth is someone who who realizes that what she wanted isn't really the end that she had hoped it would be. Whereas the witches are just bad, you know, I mean, and, and there's a kind of, they're, they're, they're perhaps more comfortable with that as a, as a kind of um, explanation for them. Yeah. That's, that's, that's an interesting point. This kind of bifurcation here, the human element, the, the human being can always be redeemed. But that you know, sort of the supernatural um, forces of evil mm-hmm. can't, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and I, I do think also that there's just this like to think about it more on a plot level. Uh, it's almost like modern stories want to have a reason for why bad things mm-hmm. happen, but that older stories just take it for granted that bad things will happen, right? Like, it is just the, of course there are witches who will curse you. Like, or of course there's a demon who wants to destroy your mead hall. Or of course a storm will knock, you, you know, like, it's it's just it's just a fact of our earthly existence that there will be suffering. The story begins when you decide how you will respond. It's kind of like, it's so kind of like how the, the book story of Macbeth begins. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, the story of Macbeth begins really when Macbeth starts making yeah. choices. Right. That's the, that's, that's the, uh, it, you know, we've talked about the book of Job before, I think when we did Constellation of Philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I do think if you put the book of Job in front of a modern person, it's not a very convincing um, uh, defense of, of why bad things happen to good people. You know, um, people often turn mm-hmm. to it like that's what it is. But again, I think you're right because the, for the pre-modern, it's just not, some of that's just taken for granted. And it's like, like Ecclesiastes and Job kind of in the Bible, both sort of have that point of like, well, you just can't control all this. And a lot of people I know who read the book of Job who aren't already Christians, 
right, who are just like reading it because they wanted to kind of up their cultural literacy. They're like, this ending is awful. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the ending of this is terrible. Because all it is is God saying, like, who are you to question me? You know, I was there when the Leviathan was made. <laughs> and, you know, and uh, this other this other stuff. Um, and yet, you could see for a reader from an earlier time, this seemed to be a compelling enough story that it mm-hmm. stuck, around, <laughs> uh, stuck around. And in a way, actually, you might think of Job not going into a, a theological interpretation here, but going into almost a literary psychological interpretation of, of the of the text as much as you can ever separate these things but it's a given that sometimes good rich men in the ancient world will lose their lose their fortune and lose their families so the fact that the accuser that satan can come to god and like strike the bargain and stuff like this that's like you won't. You don't need that part of the story to think that sometimes terrible things, right. <laughs> terrible things happen. And at least here, it, it has a point for jo- Job's mm. soul. <laughs> at least here, it has a point for Job's soul, and it's not purely chance. And that's. Uh, and sometimes maybe we posit things like the witches or something like this to at least say maybe the evil, maybe this is actually kind of a coping mechanism, right? The the evil here is not mm. purely random. The evil at, at least mm. chooses. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. I did want to, um, I did want to kind of use this to to onboard into maybe a more of a meta discussion. Um, I think it was interesting. You know, you 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 bring up some stuff about Beowulf and conversations we've had about Beowulf and how Macbeth shed some light into that. And I think it it kind of proves a, a larger point. And I think it's a it's a point that we I know we kind of agree on, and and it kind of really drives the mission of what we're doing, which is that. You know, when we read the great books, we're entering into a great conversation that has been occurring long before we existed and will continue to occur long after we die. And so it's really interesting and neat, I think, now that we've got a couple books under our belt to kind of see how they all participate in the same conversations and see how threads that we talked about when we read the Apology or when we read Consolation of Philosophy or Frederick Douglass, uh, you know, you can pick those threads up. Uh, in in any of these works, and they all kind of shed more light onto the discussion. Um, so I thought maybe we could go through. I mean, we've already done it with Beowulf. I think the witches and Grendel and Grendel's mother, and and the kind of nature of evil and all that. I think uh, absolutely uh, plays plays a great deal into it. But I I'm wondering if we might think about some of the other works we've read and and some some parallels. Um, so I mean, like. And, and and sometimes, I mean, they may not always be saying the exact same thing. Sometimes one might be making a positive case where another makes a negative case, right? Like, I think um, if you compare Boethius to Macbeth, you know, you get polar opposites. You, you get Boethius is a guy who's, from what we can tell, he goes into politics because he believes in justice and he wants to be a philosopher, a politician like Plato kind mm-hmm. of envisions he gets in trouble we're pretty sure because of his honesty um even though he was a good guy uh and then mm-hmm. you know he has a i mean because of lady philosophy but he listens to lady philosophy and has and ends up with a kind of resoluteness moving forward knowing that 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 the virtue he's acquired is way more important than any office wealth anything else right um whereas macbeth is just a total negative version of that i mean this is a guy who's willing to to dismiss any virtue in order to acquire the the status, the power, 
and everything that comes with it. And, um, and we see what happens to him, right? I mean, he totally deteriorates to the point of being going, going crazy. And, and his wife, uh, is so dehumanized. And then eventually, like you said, that, that instinct of self-preservation is taken away. Um, so anyway, so I, I, I think that's kind of an interesting, um, an interesting example, or, or you could think of the apology and, and Socrates willingness to go to his death for the truth. You know, um, Macbeth goes to his death trying to cling to power and, and out of a kind of invincibility. So, um, a sense of invincibility anyways. Um, and so Mm -hmm. I think these are all, I think these are all interesting foils, uh, for each other that, that, that all point us to the same kind of truths. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so there's, there's like two points to make here. One is like, absolutely. We are entering into the great conversation by reading these books, by thinking about them. I want to say actually be thinking about discussing or writing about them is how you really enter, right? The books are like the, the, the first springboard. Step, right? Like you start exactly you start thinking through through these issues. Now, part of a conversation though is that we don't always find total agreement. Correct. Right. So uh it's not actually clear to me that like someone like Boethius would ever counsel how does Boethius counsel the son of a murder of a assassin assassinated king to go and like live his life, right? If you have Boethius's view, mm. right? It's not clear to me. Now he might end up doing this. You might have reasons about the fittingness of the office and like what ought to be and stuff like this. But also be con- teach counseling him to be content if things don't work because you know you could have this whole story. But like, what happens? I don't. I, you know, I I, I don't know. Um, Macbeth certainly kind of exhibits not Macbeth the person. Macbeth the work has a kind of sense of righteous mm. anger to it, which is expressed often violently. Uh, but Frederick Douglass, for instance, is not a pacifist, right? But he, his principal tactic is not to advocate for violence when he's, when he's arguing. Um, so what we're seeing is we see differences, right? Which is to be expected in a conversation. Conversations are very boring if everyone agrees. Yeah. Um, but they are all kind of centering on these themes, or like th- common themes will emerge. And what is what is so fascinating about being able to find so many commonalities is that we didn't plan any of it. We just picked books right, we wanted. Right. There's there is no thought behind the reading list other than like, wouldn't this be cool? And let's not read anything too long back to back. Like those those, 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 those are, the are rules. basically the thoughts. But if you, I mean, let, let me talk just for a moment about but like why you should read the great books is uh, you're not going to get many duds <laughs> and you're going to find so many good ones th- that are going to keep you thinking. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of like having like a topic that you want to explore for a while or like reading one person for a while. But if you're not ready to do that, just go and read a lot of the mm. greats because they are going to have similar themes. They're going to speak to that common humanity so at least there you'll, you will still be thinking about similar things or you will find themes that emerge for you, which might then suggest what you need to go and mm. read later on. Mm-hmm. Now we might blow this up next, next month when we talk about, yeah, the last blow. I'm excited about that because you know, when was the last time I read Flannery O'Connor, but you know, uh, our most recent author by, by like a long shot. And so, you know, I've never read stuff. Flannery O'Connor. I'm, I'm sure ashamed to admit that, but I've never read it. So, 
I'm 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 very that's I know. Well, I love the Catholic but, novel uh, too, so, <laughs> so it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's what I that's what I thought. That's why I thought you would be. Uh, I like all the all I like the, I like the I, lesser I, known Catholic novels. Yeah, it's astounding to me that someone knows the work of Graham Greene so well, but hasn't read Flannery O'Connor. I, I have to remove the log out of my own eye. Um, yeah. But no, I think you're right. I think, well, and, and that's that's what's interesting. And I mean, I think you you see this, you even see this in, in people who agree uh, in a conversation that there is sometimes, there are sometimes different approaches to a certain topic or different articulations of the topic. And so, yeah, they may agree on the big points, but there are, are kind of minor differences. So, like, you're right, Douglas uh, certainly might disagree about the, the use of violence, and, and I don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I, that's a whole other conversation. But like, but, like, the idea of tyranny, right, and what it does to Macbeth and making him paranoid and, and becomes um, – he becomes violent, you know, I mean, to the point that he's exterminating households of women and children – um, I think I think you know fits very well with with Douglas's view of of not only what slavery did to people who owned slaves, but also um, in terms of their suppression and paranoia. I mean, he talks about that. He talks about how um, how they mm-hmm. they were scared, especially after like the Nat Turner Rebellion and stuff like that. You know, they so they so the, the um, plantation owners would push down harder you know but the more they pushed mm-hmm. the more likely there was for blowback you know and and slaves mm-hmm. were more likely like when douglas when it happens yeah. to douglas and yeah. he actually fights his uh his master at one point you know um and so yeah, so yeah, you yeah. know there's this idea of of and you you get this with macbeth right it's almost a kind of hubris um where you know he hears those prophecies the three prophecies from the from the witches and and interprets them in such a way that he thinks he's going to be invincible. And but then of course yeah, all of yeah. them are undone. And I was thinking too mm-hmm. also about um about Lord of the Rings and I was wondering if, I know we we talked a little bit about Lord of the Rings and Beowulf. Um you know when uh, when the witch king is is killed by Eowyn, spoiler alert. Um, and, and she's mm-hmm. like, you know, I am no man. And, and cause he says, no, no man can kill me. Uh, very similar here yeah. in the, uh, in the, in how Macbeth says, well, I can't, no one born of a woman can kill me. And he's like, well, I wasn't, I, I was born via C-section. <laughs> so anyways, I don't yeah. know. I don't know if there's, if <laughs> Tolkien was actually uh, intentionally doing that, but it just, it made me think of it. Um, I mean, there's lots of these, um, you see this in Greek myth sometimes too, right? The, the prophecy that when read at face value would, um, or that has a metaphor in it or has like a, a turn of phrase and that's where it is. Right. In, in sort of pop culture reference, this is where the mm. monkey paw clinches. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Like, yeah. Um, and th- this is where you find the darker reading that, that, that's so easily missed, which is, which is, I guess why um, someone like Nostradamus is, like because you can you it's so vague you can kind of apply it in any way you want (laughs) yeah 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 absolutely um oh interesting i just quickly googled eowyn and the the witch king and there is a parallels and interpretation and Macbeth listed as one of them on like the excellent see this is why you tune into this podcast you get these kind of hot takes you know and they end up being right 
<laughs> hot takes that apparently everyone shares. Which is, uh, but it doesn't count um, if we didn't know they great. shared. It's like a, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Do you know the United States? Founded in 1776. <laughs> Just you know, we use some Roman uh, iconography. I wonder, uh, I wonder if there's some significance there. <laughs> good point. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> why are why are there so many columns? <laughs> uh, That's probably a good mug. Uh, we should. Sell, right, I think. Uh, ever get into the yeah. merch game? Why are there so many columns? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's a good one. All right, so I think we're yeah, at a natural stopping for sure. point for Macbeth. Um, before we go to end notes, I want to point out to people that we are approaching a part of the season. You know, we're doing a kind of year-long season. We'll take a little bit of a break and then start it back up. Um, we are approaching a part of the season where our paid subscribers, our supporters, will help us pick a new an, the next book. Um, and that's going to happen in like two or three months. The reason I say it now is we are going to actually probably post that discussion thread mm-hmm. pretty soon. Because last time we posted it like a month in advance, and some people suggested some books that were excellent suggestions that we could not feasibly read in a right. month if we were going to do other things. Um, and and so I think the next one isn't until like July or something. It, when when uh, there's a, a listener supported June or a, a, uh, well, a supporter June um, and July are book. both TBDs. Okay, one of those is because we might have a guest. One of them is also when the uh, yeah. supporters can pick. I know I want to know what it <laughs> yes, is please. sooner rather than later because uh, as as people may know, if they people will know this if they, some of they watch some of my YouTube videos, but I don't know if I've mentioned it here. Like I have a baby on the way that's coming in May, so you know if we are reading the brothers Karamazov and releasing it in June, I probably need to. Plan but Jared for that just spoiled the, the guest in <laughs> before June. the baby's born. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's, that's right. It's going to be the most riveting conversation. But um, anyway, my point is, if you were thinking about supporting us uh, at theclassicalmind.com and uh, checking this out, you can always find a link in the show notes. But if you're thinking about it, now would be a great time uh, because you'd be able to have a part of that discussion. I loved it. Even this mo- today, though, you posted a thread basically in the Subsec chat app. And it was like, hey, you know, we're going to talk about uh, uh, Macbeth and just like started asking people about Shakespeare and people just start having a conversation. It's very organic. The people are really friendly and uh, it's a small community. And I think it's, it's, it's really, yeah, no, I, I think the community is great because uh, what yeah. we see is it's a lot of people who are just really hungry to read and learn and discuss. And I, I think that's so cool. It, I'm constantly amazed at some of the things that come up in conversation and the points people make and all that. I, I think it's so cool. I think now we should go to end notes. This is the part of the show where we recommend a different work for you. This could be another book. This could be a movie. could be an album. could be something. Some piece of media that is related to what we just read, but is not what we just read. So, yeah, Wesley, so, why don't you start um, us off? For me, there's a book, actually a couple books that, um, that I think are really helpful. You know, we talk about the benefit of conversation and, and reading these works in conversation, but it's also helpful, I think, when we encounter... Any great book, you know, if you're in a class where you're reading the great books, you know that you have the benefit of other students and discussing the text with them and your teacher. And so if you're someone out there who um, wants to approach classic texts, um, but you don't maybe have the benefit of being in a class, 
Um, there's a, there are a couple good books by a guy named Peter Lightheart, who is a scholar, um, and actually really more of a theologian than a literary scholar, but he's got, he's got two books. One is called the brightest heaven of invention. And he basically goes through various Shakespeare plays, gives you a commentary, kind of the, the what's what, a very literary reading of it. Um, he is coming from a Christian perspective and he doesn't bat an eye about that he does give you some theological analysis of the text but i think it's still just from a a literary perspective valuable to have something like that as you're reading so if you're if you're wanting to read more shakespeare you're wanting to read macbeth kind of in conversation with someone brightest heaven of invention may be good and he also has the same kind of book for the greek classics like uh, iliad odyssey aeneid uh, theogony um called heroes of the city of man that's also a pretty helpful book. So um, I think those that's what I would recommend for this one. Okay, I am going to recommend a work by Xenophon called On Tyranny. So Xenophon is an ancient Greek philosopher. It's around in like the 5th century BC. Uh, and you can get this edition with uh, Leo Strauss's commentary about On Tyranny. Now, Strauss is kind of a, 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 an interesting figure in the history of hermeneutics and stuff. Um, I will say the Straussians are the ones who always talk about the great conversation. Like, they're the ones who really love to talk about it. So you're, if you're in these circles, you will hear from them. Uh, and they often go for very strange, deep readings of stuff. Um, but the nice thing is you don't even have to read the Strauss stuff if you don't want. Just read the translation he provides of Xenophon's On Tyranny. Because part of that text is about the tyrant actually arguing that he can't be happy. And so the tyrant is not in a position to to experience joy. And I think that after reading Beowulf and after reading Macbeth, thinking about like what is the mm. role of like the good leader, right? And 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 what stops someone from wanting to be a tyrant? Um, these are the sorts of questions we could maybe be asking ourselves and uh, Xenophon will will get us started on that down that path, I guess. All right. Well, next month, we will be reading Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood. After that, we are reading John Stuart Mill's Utilitarianism. If you have been thinking, man, Wesley and Jared are too nice to these books, and they never <laughs> criticize anything, just wait until we read Utilitarianism, folks. That is when the gloves are coming off. It will be nothing but pain and absolutely no pleasure. Um, so, And John Stuart Mill will never recover. But... Uh, I think there'll be a, still a good conversation. Then we'll move on to having our uh, our supporter picks and everything. And, you know, we'll be wrapping up season one in just a couple of months. So, you know, keep tuning in. Go check out the Substack if that's what interests you. Wesley's been putting out these great little newsletters uh, every two weeks uh, to give people stuff to chew on and discuss. And I think it's, uh, I think it's worth it. But, you know, uh, at the very least, keep downloading this podcast. And we will see you next time.